Amen. Hey, once again, Bobby, we're in World Religions, Cults in the Occult, and number 12 is Scientology. Once we're seeing science fiction, it's not uh, uh, science, it's not tology, it is really what? Science fiction occult is really what this is. That's the tagline for this study. And we've been dealing with where in the world is this thing coming from? So far, we've been dealing with the history, of course. And uh, one of these days, we'll get into just tit for tat. Where in the world do they get it wrong in all the five classic areas that cults get it wrong, starting with their source of authority, which is not the Bible. But you're going to see, Lord willing, tonight uh, that they use the same terms uh, for L. Ron Hubbard's writing as we do for the Bible. They call it the scripture. It's just crazy. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But they get it wrong, certainly on the source of authority who and you get that wrong everything else spills downhill you get God wrong you get Jesus wrong you get the Trinity wrong you get man wrong salvation wrong and man you just it's all bad stuff so the history of course who is it L Ron Hubbard we're gonna see again tonight pick up where we left off last time with his death he was involved with the occult from early on even as a teenager he was heavy duty into the occult we saw that with Crowley and Parsons uh, and that's why even Scientology today you understand the occult you understand Scientology they're deeply meshed together. Most people don't know because they don't know the occult. Number two, he came out with his book. We saw eventually Dianetics. That was his big breakthrough. Money breakthrough because that's really what it's all about. Okay. Uh, but he had it and then he lost it. And then man, he wasn't ever going to lose it again. So he basically turned it into Scientology, turned it into a religion and began to grab control. Nobody is going to get this thing away from me ever again. And that's the last couple times we saw his development of a military force. An organization called the Guardian's Office, which they say today is, oh, what are you talking about? This no longer in existence. We got rid of that. Yeah, you just changed the name. It's called the OSA today. Okay, but that's basically their uh, their military police going after people combined with their Sea Org. But they also, if you even get out of line, if you are a person who's in Scientology, you want to get out, you want to uh, speak bad, they actually have a slave camp. Now, they don't call it that because that's bad press. Uh, they call it the Rehabilitation Project Force or the RPF. If we get that far tonight, you're going to see what the people are basically slave labor. They re-brainwash them uh, to go back into it. Then, of course, where we left off last time was finally L. Ron Hubbard died. Okay, and as we saw last time, I, I, I got kind of verbalized it to you. L. Ron Hubbard, of course, as we uh, were treated to his exciting music that he composed. Remember that? <laughs> I almost was going to play it again, but turn to someone and say, he really loves us. He loves us. I'm going to spare you a second time. Once is enough. But he wrote a soundtrack that you're supposed to listen to, apparently, to Battlefield Earth and all that stuff. Just guys full of himself, with all due respect, right? But he's so full of himself that when he died, uh, he actually wrote his own eulogy. He told people what to say at his own funeral. Okay, so we're going to pick up where we left off last time with his death. Now, we're going to see a reenactment, okay? And you're going to see people do what he said to do, that he was written down when he dies, okay? But you're going to hear a voiceover of the gentleman who is now in charge of Scientology that we're going to, Lord willing, get into towards the tail end of our study tonight, uh, a gentleman named David... Okay, Miss Cavage, okay, he is the current leader, okay? The guy you're gonna hear the voiceover on this first video, uh, it's a reenactment of his voice, but it's his actual words. If you were here last Wednesday, we saw the actual video clip of him making the announcement of L. Ron Hubbard. So let's pick up where we left off, let's continue forward, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's death and what he told people to do uh, to say at his funeral. Let's take a look at this first one. Hubbard spent most of the last 10 years in hiding in America. Only a few close aides knew where he was. At 20 hundred hours, Friday the 24th of January, 1986, L. Ron Hubbard discarded the body he had used in this lifetime 
for 74 years, 10 months, and 11 days. The body he had used to facilitate his existence in this universe had ceased to be useful, and in fact had become an impediment to the work he now must do outside its confines. The being we knew as L. Ron Hubbard still exists. Although you may feel grief, understand that he did not and does not now. He has simply moved on to his next step. LRH in fact used this lifetime in the body we knew to accomplish what no man has ever accomplished. He unlocked the mysteries of life and gave us the tools so that we could free ourselves and our fellow man. Those were the words of the church's official announcement of Hubbard's death last year. When alive, Hubbard claimed he had visited heaven twice, and the second time found it shabby. His Scientology funeral service was one he had written. And now here, lift up your eyes and say to him, goodbye. 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 Our dear Ron, goodbye. We'll miss you, you know. Hubbard had signed a new will the day before he died, insisting that he be cremated at once and the ashes scattered at sea. The fate of his vast but secret fortune was also murky, but power had passed to the young followers who were with him at the end. Specifically one fellow that we're going to again focus on, and his name is David Miscavige, that's where it went. But uh, how'd you like that uh, exciting uh, uh, eulogy there? Goodbye, goodbye. They were really getting into it, as you could tell. Goodbye. Ron. <laughs> I almost was going to play that song again. I was like, they should have that horse. Wee as they're saying goodbye to him. But it was just, wow, that was whatever. But anyway, that's, that's the way it was. So that's the, the, the re What's that? Are you serious? No, I love these people too much. Nice try. Uh, but anyway, that's right. <laughs> but uh, that's what uh, we, we left off last time. Now, Miscavige, I want to set the pace for you. Uh, this character because again what we're not going to see is not some gentle Passover It's not like boy. We planned this through and through and it's just a nice transition. It's a logical choice It was a hostile takeover this guy had uh, what I believe uh, is if you will to use the term uh, a Spirit of uh, mr. Diotrephes, okay remember him in the scripture Well for those of you who don't open your Bibles to third John We're gonna take a look at this guy and this kind of encapsulates to me the, the, this guy we're going to see, Miscavige, who uh, took over for Mr. Hubbard. Nothing gentle about it. And uh, this guy literally, uh, I believe, had a plan. And he was putting it into place before Hubbard even died, uh, without Hubbard even knowing it. He, hostile takeover. He slowly grabbed control of every aspect, the money, the military of Scientology, and he took the top, right? But third John... Let's take a look there. Uh, let's start with the verse uh, 5 there. It says, Dear friend, he's writing to uh, Gaius. He says, You are faithful in what you are doing uh, for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have uh, told the church about your love, and uh, you do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help uh, from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that they may work together for truth. So that's the good example in the church, this church that John's writing to, uh, Gaius. Now he literally points out a guy. Listen to this. He says, though I wrote to the church, but who? Diotrephes. Now, wait a second. How many times, I mean, personally, I've got so much flack for this. It's like, well, what Bible are you reading? 
right? They say, you shouldn't call out names, Pastor Billy. You shouldn't name names. He says, well, first of all, a person as a shepherd, uh, I, I like to be, you know, in love blunt that people can warn. I don't like to dance around the issue personally. Hey, church, there's a, a really bad uh, Joe out there. He's teaching false doctrine. He's leading people astray. It's a, it's a false wor- uh, works-based salvation. It's leading people straight to hell, but you can just discover who it is. No, just name them. Who is it, right? I don't have a problem with that, dropping names, whatever. Why? Because what are we doing here? Who's he calling out? He called out a guy's name. Am I making this up? Is this foreign? No. Now, atrophies, right? Paul, this is John. Jesus did the same thing, Matthew uh, 23. The whole chapter is he's calling out the Pharisees in public with some very harsh words. Uh, Paul does the same thing with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He calls them out in public to the church. This is a lie to silence, to keep false teachers moving the church that you shouldn't call out people's names. Okay, and that's a whole little side issue. But that's what he does. And because John loves the church, he not only tells them what's right, he calls out the troublemaker in the church by name. And listen to this troublemaker. Here's what he was doing. Diotrephes, and he what? He loves to be first. He not only wants to be the top, he not only wants to be the guy in charge. That's what we're going to see tonight with Miscavige, right? But listen, he will have nothing to do with us. So he shoves everybody else out of the way. He is going to be on the top no matter what, right? And then he says, so I will come and I will call attention to what he's doing, John says. And he gossiping maliciously about us. And again, that's what people do in Scientology. That's their modus of operandi. When somebody starts uh, talking about them, they go after them maliciously. They make up stories. They lie. Remember last week we saw all their different operations going after people, making up stories, making up lies, right? But that's what they do. Maliciously talking about it is what he says there. And then he goes on. He says, and not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So really, in essence, I was considering this Miscavige guy. He's taken over. It's a hostile takeover. We'll see that in a second. He takes over from L. Ron Hubbard. It's the spirit of this guy, if you will, to use that terminology uh, loosely, by the way. Uh, Diotrephes. He wants to be first, and he'll shove anybody out. He will make up rumors. He will slam people. He will kick them out just to get to the top, and he did it. And he has been in charge, I believe, ever since, I think it was 1986. This guy's still in charge. And boy, if anything, he took a lesson from Hubbard. I'll never lose this again. And this guy's grabbed control, and he's still got the reins today. But let's take a look. Now, uh, that's where Hubbard, he died. They did the funeral, right? Now, in Hubbard's absence, again, there was nothing pleasant about the change of leadership. Listen, members of the Sea Org staged a takeover, and that's a.k.a. Mr. Miscavige, uh, and purged many veteran Scientologists, okay? And, uh, and Miscavige became the, the leader. Mary Sue Hubbard, that was Hubbard's third wife, she was forced to resign her position. And listen to this, her daughter, Suzette, became Miscavige's personal maid. God just shoved her, kicked her right out. Now, they're all in this together. I'm not trying to necessarily draw, whatever. But still, you're seeing the heart of this guy. He is coming in like a bull. He is taking over. He's going to be first just like Diotrephes, right? And so anyway, so now basically... We'll get into him taking over more in a little bit, but I want to get, okay, so Hubbard died. Now that, as we saw before, that led to a problem because this guy was basically, he's it. He's the leader. The leader's dead. This is the guy that started all. Uh, he, he was deified, basically. We'll see that in a second again. So, so now what are you going to do? You got a problem, right? So as we saw, again, you heard the verbiage, they spiritualized his death, right? Oh, he didn't die. He's too supernatural to die. What, remember what the, what the excuse was? You heard it again. The verbiage, he just, he was such, he completed so many levels, right? For the benefit of mankind, the body now became an impediment. And he had to ditch it to go on to do more work for us. And he's coming back. 
No, he died. And if you hear last week, you saw how he really died. It was bad. He was probably demon-possessed, certainly with what he was involved in, but as, as people who were with him who have now come out, he was not only hearing things, he was smelling things, he was seeing things that weren't there. He was going insane, in my opinion. He, it was like Howard Hughes, the nails were long. It was not pleasant. But they spin it, they twist it, because they have to spiritualize and deify that. So that's what they did right after his death. They began to switch gears, and not only his death did they begin to deify, but they literally backtracked, and they began to amplify and deify everything this guy did, L. Ron Hubbard, right? Because he's gone now. So they basically got to turn him into this cult hero guy. He's just supernatural. He's, incre- he's the most incredible human being that ever lived, right? So let me give you a teaser of today what Scientology. We've spent five weeks going through his absolutely dark, a cold, rotten, horrible, sinful past, right? Listen to what they say today, and then again, you're going to see every single one is a lie. They've basically rewritten his history, but listen to this. Accounts published by Church of Scientology describe Hubbard as, quote, a child prodigy of sorts who, listen, who rode a horse before he could walk. He was able to read and write by the age of four. They also say that he was brought up on his grandfather's large cattle ranch in Montana, pay attention to that, where he spent days riding and breaking broncos and hunting coyotes and and taking his first steps as an explorer, right? That was his childhood. They also said his grandfather, this is Scientology today, his grandfather, Hubbard's grandfather, is described as a wealthy western cattleman, that's right, from whom Hubbard uh, inherited, quote, his fortune, what? What do we see in this history? This guy was poor as dirt. That's why he wanted to make money. I'm going to have money. And he invented a religion to make money, right? But anyway, whatever. They say he, he inherited his fortune and his family interests in America and South Africa, etc. Then they claim that Hubbard was even. That's right, because he can combine all peoples together, right? He became a blood brother of the Native American Blackfeet tribe at the age of six through his friendship with the Blackfeet medicine man. What a guy! And I'm just getting started, right? I'm telling you, after his death, they had to spin it, and this guy's incredible. However, let's take a look at the facts. Records show that his grandfather, Lafayette Waterbury, now you know why, it's L. Ron Hubbard. He apparently didn't like the name Lafayette, right? L. Ron Hubbard, who he's named after, right? He, he, listen, he was a, veterar- a veterinarian. He wasn't a rancher, right? Number one lie. Number two, and he was not wealthy, right? Also, Hubbard was actually raised in a townhouse in the center of Helena, not on a cattle ranch. And according to his aunt, his family did not even own a ranch, but they did own one cow. That's it. But that's a wealthy cattle man, right? Whatever. It's crazy, right? Uh, Hubbard also lived over 100 miles from the Blackfeet Reservation. And sources say that the tribe didn't even practice blood brotherhood. And there's no evidence of any of that going on, certainly with Hubbard. It's all make-believe. If anything, they're taking a, a page out of Hubbard himself with him making up stories. They're doing it for him. Now, let's continue on. Then they say he was just this great explorer, right? He not only could apparently ride bronco, breaking horses at the age of six, and he, could, he also is described as traveling to China. See, because that's Hubbard, right? He, he's going around to seeking the world's different sources of wisdom. He's putting it all together to find the truth for humanity and yeah, whatever. So here's what they say. He went to China, they said, at a time when Westerners could not enter. And according to Scientology, he spent his time questioning, that's right, at a young age, Buddhist lamas. He, he met with old Chinese magicians. And according to Scientology, his travels were funded by his wealthy grandfather, who was a veterinarian and they owned one cow. But anyway, whatever, shh, shh, shh. 
I'm not supposed to know that. But anyway, that's a lie. But anyway, whatever. So then they say, he, quote, made his way into Manchuria's western hills and beyond to break bread with Mongolian bandits, to share campfires with Siberian shamans and, and befriend the last in line of magicians from the court of uh, Kublai Khan. However, guess what? Why? <laughs> None of that stuff's been ever recorded. He doesn't even record this stuff in his diary, number, uh, number two. Uh, and by the way, when it came to his impression of the Chinese, the guy was a racist. He didn't think highly of the Chinese, right? They wanted to think, oh, he was over there with this oriental you know, truth and, and these people. And he thought, he, you know, listen to this. I got some quotes. Uh, <clears throat> here's what he said about, and this is racist. He said, quote, a Chinaman, this is Hubbard. A Chinaman cannot live up to a thing. He always drags it down. And then he said, quote, they smell of all the baths they did not take. And the trouble with China is there are, there are too many chinks there. I almost didn't even want to say that, but that's, yeah. And then you're saying, oh, he's over there investigating their wisdom. He thinks highly. Are you kidding me? The guy's a racist. That's the truth. Oh, but they, they continue on. Now, it comes with his education. We saw a little bit of this before. Despite having not graduated George Washington in Washington, D.C., that university there, Hubbard not only claimed to be a graduate, but a graduate engineer <clears throat> and supposedly a member of the first United States course in formal education in what today is called nuclear physics. So on top of all that, he was some nuclear physics, mathematics genius, right? However, here's the truth. Uh, the bio, uh, one biography describes him as, quote, never no he was never noted for even being in class. Two, he thoroughly detested his subjects. Three, he earned poor grades and was placed on probation, and then he dropped out altogether. Right? And Scientology accounts, though, that says, oh, no, he studied nuclear physics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and th this was just before he was going out on his journey to study mind, spirit, and life, and all that stuff. Well, well here's the university records tell a different story. Shocker. Uh, they indicate that his exposure to so-called nuclear physics uh, consisted of one class called Atomic and Molecular Phenomena, for which he earned an F. <laughs> and yet he's supposed to be this expert, right? Lying. They lie about things. Here's another one. Uh, according to, uh, he was like, uh, not only could he apparently break horses and do all stuff at the age of six and all this weird stuff, but apparently he could fly. I don't know if you realize this. And Scientology says that he earned his wings as a pioneering barnstormer at the dawn of American aviation. He was, quote, recognized as one of the country's most outstanding pilots with virtually no training time. He takes a powered flight and he barnstorms to the Midwest. Wow, what a guy. Only that's not the guy. Really what went on was he had an airman certificate, but records say that he was only qualified to fly gliders, not powered aircraft, and then he even lost that certificate because he couldn't afford the renewal fee. Liar. Oh, they keep going on. Then they say, oh, this guy, he's traveling the world. He knows everything about life from the Wild West, from the, the Middle East, from uh, different cultures, and from flying and adventures. And the, he even knows things about uh, mining and ores and the earth and the planet. And, you know, listen to this. They said, he, quote, made the first complete mineralogical survey of Puerto Rico. And that <clears throat> this journey, of course, once again, was augmented uh, his father's pay with mining adventure. And, and L. Ron Hubbard supposedly, listen, sluiced inland rivers. He crisscrossed the island of Puerto Rico in search of elusive gold. And he did this, not just for money, 
but the much ethnological work amongst interior villages and native hillsmen, right? He's there to learn about the people and everything. He's learning everything just for us. Here's what really happened. The biographer writes that neither the United States Geological Survey nor the Puerto Rican Department of Natural Resources has any record of any such expedition. Complete fabrication. Then, remember he went to Hollywood, and when he was in Hollywood there in Southern California, he hooks up with Parsons, right? And they're doing their black magic uh, occult rituals. Remember that? We spent a couple weeks just on that. It was, it was sick stuff, right? Okay, here's what Scientology says he was going down there for. Quote, <clears throat> Hubbard was called. He was called to Hollywood. Why? That's right, to work on film. And they said, they actually claimed that he worked on Columbia Pictures, on movies such as The Mysterious Pilot, The Great Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, and The Spider Returns. The problem is, his name doesn't appear anywhere on the credits. That's not what he was down there. Right? Then, as we saw before, he was supposed to be this great naval hero. He was shot. He was wounded. He was this great soldier. He was, man, he was everybody's man. Well, of course, that's not what happened. They say he was a much decorated war hero. He was crippled and wounded. He, he was awarded so many medals for his service. And he was severely wounded and, and taken crippled and blinded and to a military hospital where he, quote, worked his way back to fitness himself with strength and in full prescription less than two years using only what he had learned and his techniques. And You know where I'm going. Uh, the Navy does have records, you know. And so they say his, quote, military performance, he was in the Navy for a little bit, but, quote, his military performance was substandard. He was never recorded as being injured or even wounded in combat, and he never received a Purple Heart and all that other stuff that they were saying. Lied. Complete fabrication. Now, now, now there's so much heat on this one. I don't know if you guys know this, but sit, you talk about God's timing. Right? Scientology is not only a hot topic now with uh, uh, Leah Remini going through it and been for a while. But even recently, when we went to that study, you know, five weeks ago or so, right, with Parsons, they came out with a, 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 a show. Have you guys seen that? Strange something, what's it called? Whatever. But anyway, now, now they're talking about this Parsons guy, the JPL Laboratories, and, and the, the occult stuff that he was doing with Hubbard, right? So even that's hitting there. But anyway, my point I bring that up is, well, because of this stuff, it's coming out. Uh, Scientology can't say that he was not involved in some of that stuff with Parsons. They can't say that he wasn't involved with Crowley in the OTO, right? Alistair Crowley, again, the, the, even the, the secular people say he's the most evil man that ever lived on the planet, right? So, so, but listen to how they spun it, right? Listen to this. Scientology does mention Hubbard's involvement in the occult, but he is instead of it, uh, 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 during this time, they said, well, this was part of him uh, learning to... Uh, uh, develop uh, his means of truth and things of that nature. So, you know, he, of course he was there to, you know, you got to learn whatever you got to learn to, you know, wrap it all together for humanity and expose that. But even further than that, listen, they said, and I quote, you know why he really went there, folks? So you got to squint your eye when you get serious and shake your head. Quote, listen to this. He was called there to break up black magic in America. What a guy. Are you kidding me? He was involved in it, man. And he helped spread this stuff. But they said, oh no, he, that's why he's there secretly, secretly, to break it all up and shut it down, right? And, and, and that he just went to live there at, Par remember the Parsons house was called the Parsonage, the occult center, 
right? He went to, quote, live at that house and investigated the black magic rites, uh, and he found them, quote, very bad. <laughs> and his mission was successful beyond anybody's expectations. The house was torn down, and, and Hubbard rescued the girl that they were using. Are you kidding me? He ran off with the guy's girlfriend, right? He committed a, a bigamy, right? He, it was, anyway, so, let alone adultery and whatever, and she eventually became his next wife, right? And, and anyway, so, and then they say, quote, the black magic group that he was in, in, in the, as like a mole, Right? Uh, was dispersed and destroyed and has never recovered. Are you kidding me? The OTO is still in existence today. Give me a break. One of these days, if we ever get to the occult, <laughs> we'll deal with that uh, in great detail. So, now, so this is what's going on. So basically, Hubbard dies. Miscavige begins his process. We'll get into that more in a little bit. He begins this hostile takeover. Okay, the spirit of the diatrophies is all over him. Right? And then, right, again, they're going through this transition period. Right? What are you going to do? And so they, they deify him. They rewrite his history. This guy, he didn't die. He's, he's, he was so spiritual. His body had to be shed to move on to the next level for us. And, and his life is incredible. His childhood, his military career, everything about this guy is amazing, right? So, and then uh, his son started having some family issues. His son, we saw the video before, uh, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. First of all, he changed his name to Ronald DeWolf. And we saw the court hearing exposing what was really going on. Uh, he uh, sued to try to get control of his father's estate. Part of that was because Miscavige is doing this hostile takeover, right? Then Alexis Valerie, Hubbard's daughter, by his second wife, Sarah, uh, was rebuffed uh, and basically just went out to dry uh, because they said that, uh, no, no, your, your dad wasn't L. Ron Hubbard. It was Jack Parsons. So they tried to do that. And then, of course, they did their old tried and true. They said, no, your mother's a Nazi spy, right? And all that stuff. Again, they defame and all that malicious talk and stuff there. Uh, both of those guys later, uh, they dropped it eventually uh, when they received settlements and, quote, with, when litigation was threatened. In other words, we saw before what still to this day is a methodology of Scientology. This is their guardian's office, which has just been changed to the OSA. Okay, still in today. When somebody says anything negative, what do they do? Fear, intimidation, threats of lawsuits. Hubbard is the one that set that up from the get-go. They still do it today. He did that to his own kids. Okay, the organization, right? Now, so now they got another problem. So they're making it through these court issues. They're trying that. And Miscavige is taking control. They're deifying Hubbard, right? Because he died. We got to spin this baby somehow, right? And keep this, this money train going, right? But they've got a lot of material, Right? And it's stated, quote, according to Scientology, Hubbard produced some 65 million words on Dianetics and Scientology, contained about 500,000 pages of written material, 3,000 recorded lectures, 100 films. His works of fiction included some 500 novels and short stories. Uh, they say he published nearly 600 books, stories, and articles during his lifetime. He sold over 23 million copies of fiction, 27 million copies of nonfiction. Okay, so now what are you going to do with this guy's stuff? Well, you deified him. You basically made him into a god. He's the founder of all this stuff, so keep it going, right? So if you're going to have your own religion, what do you need? You better come up with your own Bible to use the term, and this is what they use, folks. I'm not, you're going to see it in a second. You need a scripture. And so basically, that's what they began the process. They're taking all of Hubbard's writing, and they're elevating them to scripture, right? Right? And, and, and so what they basically, they set up this uh, organization called uh, CST, still in existence today. CST, that is the Church of Spiritual Technology. And uh, basically, uh, they're setting this up 
for him uh, when he comes back. Because that's what he told him. And I quote, listen to this. He told his followers, Hubbard did, to preserve his teachings until an eventual reincarnation, right? Uh, as we saw before, obviously it's not true. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed man to die once, then face judgment. But that's part of his, we'll get to that later. Uh, so preserve his writings, quote, until he comes back when, quote, he is, and this is him saying this, quote, he's, he's coming back, he said, not as a, quote, religious leader, but a political one. Because remember, there was two things we saw back in his occult days. He not only uh, thought, he, uh, he not only was working with Satan, he thought he was Satan. Remember, that came from his own son, saying that his dad uh, shared that. Okay, as well. And also, what, that he was the Antichrist. So, and things of that nature, they were trying to do the black magic stuff and bring in the spirit of the Antichrist and all that other stuff. So that's what he said. So basically, he told him in advance, save my stuff. And that's what they did. But they saved the stuff. But this, this is part of the legend. It's not just stuff we're saving. These aren't just books. This is scripture. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, believe it or not, and I think this is part of the show. You know, we're not just going to put this in a box. We're just not going to have this in the Library of Congress. We're not going to trust anybody to do it. We're going to dump money. And they got money. And we're going to secretly preserve this stuff in waves that will last forever and ever and ever. And we will hide them inside of mountains, deep in these secured canisters. You see, it sounds like science fiction. But that's really what they're doing. And they have been doing. Now, I'm going to show you one of their bases that they're storing the scriptures, what they call them, of Hubbard's writing. Okay, And this is the Trementina uh, base, Scientology base in New Mexico, right? Now, you're also going to see that these bases, and I'm not going to give you the answer yet. I will in a little bit. These bases, they have uh, uh, their own logo. This, this Church of Spiritual Scientology that is in charge of uh, saving the scriptures of, I even hesitate to say that, of Hubbard, right? They have these, uh, uh, this is their logo, right? And it's, and it's anyway, but they, they etch it in the ground Right? You can't see it from the ground, it's only from air. In fact, you can see it from space. So it's not only you store this stuff, as we'll see in a second, but then you got this thing that you can only see from the air. What, why are they, what's all that about? Well, I'm going to share with you, and this was uh, uh, towards the beginning when they first built this base in New Mexico, and uh, listen to what Scientology tried to do to keep them from getting this information out. But let's take a look at this first one. KRQB News 13 has been working for months to bring you a story tonight at 10 about a hidden Scientology compound in New Mexico. But the church that runs the compound doesn't want you to see our story. KRQB News 13's Kim Baez, who did the investigation, is here with more. Today, the Church of Spiritual Technology flew their administrator into town from Los Angeles. She visited our station with an attorney. Their mission? To stop our story from airing. The story is about a very important place to the Church of Scientology, one that very few non-Scientologists know about. And it sits hidden deep in a remote part of New Mexico. Tonight at 10, we'll tell you what is inside and what is so sacred. In the meantime, the Church of Spiritual Technology is doing all it can to stop this story from hitting the airwaves. They and their attorney sat down with News 13 to try to convince us this story should stay private. 
But before that, they sought the help of a powerful New Mexico lawmaker who called News 13 to say the Scientologists had been, quote, good neighbors in San Miguel County, and he encouraged us to not run our story tonight. And the church administrator told us today they have called the president of our company, MS Communications, to get him to put a halt to this. But this story will air. Tonight at 10, you will see exactly what this compound is about, what the Church of Scientology and Spiritual Technology has in the mountains of New Mexico that they don't want you to see. John Travolta, Leah Remini, Catherine Bell, Kirstie Alley, Jenna Elfman. These are reportedly the most famous faces of Scientology. Well, aside from Tom Cruise, of course. Have you ever felt this way before? Who could forget this jumping on the couch incident on Oprah? Cruz, so in love with Katie Holmes, something he attributes to Scientology. There's things in my life in Scientology and tools that I've spoken of before that I apply to my life. The first major religion to be created in the 20th century. The man behind it, the author who brought the world Battlefield Earth and other sci-fi thrillers. L. Ron Hubbard taught his followers that man has lived through many past lives and is immortal. And in order to be happy, a person must deal with bad spirits and memories of past traumas. All those teachings are being preserved and stashed right here in New Mexico. This thing is built into the face of a rock. Few people have been inside. The compound is very secluded and hidden. To get to it, you have to drive nearly an hour outside of Las Vegas through miles upon miles of barren pasture land. You then drive through some mountain areas and then several miles of winding, dusty dirt roads. At the end of the county road sits 40 private acres and visitors say several miles beyond this sits a massive, lavish compound. And this vault. It may look like a house, but if you look closely, you see the secret it conceals. The actual vault area uh, is built up into the, into the side of the mountain. Las Vegas Police Chief Tim Gallegos is one of very few non-Scientologists to go inside. He toured the vault 12 years ago. If I remember correctly, it was about 300 feet deep at that time. The things he saw haven't faded from his memory. They have CD. Uh, they're, they're using some special paper that they're actually uh, printing this on. It's got special ink and it's supposed to last forever. Um, there were titanium plates and some other things. All this, Gallego says, is used to preserve the teachings and writings of L. Ron Hubbard. The paper, similar to that used for money, and the titanium plates. They were actually inscribed, like yes, etched. Like etched, exactly. And they had a process of doing it. And the boxes they're stored in, also titanium. They were a little bit larger than uh, maybe a case of paper, a box of paper, and, and all of these things were put in there and they had special screws and, and a special way of actually sealing the box. They had these things lined up. Uh, I want to say they're probably four or five feet tall and I don't remember how many containers actually fit on three shelves of these these mobile racks that they were wheeling them in. Well, it's very unique. It's very unique. San Miguel County Manager Les Montoya has not been allowed in the vault but has visited the compound twice and he's learned the story behind it. We asked that question why you know how the facility was located in San Miguel County and they said they went through they went through a series of uh, series of questions and and uh, concerns regarding future of this of the of the of the earth basically and as they looked at maps throughout the, the world 
they figured that this was one of the areas that met all of their requirements, and so they set up shop there. One thing that can't be seen from a ground tour is this symbol within the trees, where Sky Ranger videotaped from the air. It's a symbol that can be seen all the way from space. We haven't been able to determine what the symbol means to believers, but we do know it's a registered trademark of the Church of Spiritual Technology, a branch of Scientology which actually owns the New Mexico property. This very same symbol shows up at a similar compound in California. Do you know that this compound even existed here? No. When you ask around Las Vegas, few people know of the secret vault. The one they find out? Wow. Did you know this existed? No, I did not. Well, now I do. We were denied permission to visit the vault when we put our story together. However, church representatives today offered us a chance to go inside if we agreed to cancel tonight's story. We declined. Back to you. Thank you, Kim. And we want to apologize for that interruption at the top of Kim's story. The cable broadcasting network, for some reason, chose that exact moment to do a system-wide emergency broadcast test. I'm sure that was a quinky dink all the way to the end, trying to get him to do that. But as you saw, this is real. They're building this stuff. And that's just one of many of these bases. That's the one in New Mexico. And uh, again, notice it wasn't, you know, that we got to find, they, supposedly this is that's supposed to be a secure spot, right, in case something happens to the planet or blows up or war or whatever. We've got to preserve these writings, okay? But notice again how big that symbol was on the ground. And, and they put that in their locations. Why? Well, I'll get to that in just a little bit. But the Church of Spiritual Scientology, that's what's called, the one that basically archives this stuff, okay, uh, that's what they're charged to do. We have got to do this. We have got to uh, preserve his writings in such capacity that uh, when he comes back, he's ready to go. Oh, by the way, they also got IRS uh, tax-exempt status uh, in 1993, again, which is a mind-blower, as we saw last week. How in the world did you do that when you were guilty of infiltrating the government multiple times, right? But, but the CST, Overseas Scientology, is, they call it the archiving project, right? And they put this thing, they don't just put it on paper, try to preserve the paper. Listen, they take his writings, they put it on stainless steel tablets, they encase it in titanium capsules, uh, in specially constructed vaults. Again, that's not the only place. It's all around the world. Copies of Hubbard's works go through a rigorous process. Uh, even what is on paper, uh, they remove a special acid thing off the paper and all that stuff, and they put it in these plastic envelopes. And then they place all this in titanium time capsules. Uh, and again, this is what they're supposed to do. And they said, listen, it can withstand being sprayed with salt water for a thousand years. Thousand years, that's right, right? And, uh, and again, even, that's just the writings. Hubbard's taped lectures are recorded again onto gold compact discs encased in glass, okay? Now, when I, I, I might have shared with you guys, when, when Reed and I were um, finishing up filming for the SEALs documentary that we just released, uh, the, uh, we were on that last ditch filming effort, and we were in uh, Washington, D.C. because we are doing filming at the U.N., and that was the creepy thing. You got to see the footage on that one. When, you know what you got to see? You got to see Reed. He's awesome. Give it for Reed, right? We, we had this discussion with this lady, this lady. No, if anybody can record on a phone, it's Reed, right? I, I got to show you this. It's like a little teaser for the documentary. I couldn't believe it, right? You guys are familiar with the phrase peace and security, peace and security. Remember Paul says that? When people say peace and safety, which is asphalia, I believe in the Greek, means safety. Same thing, peace and safety, peace, safety as in because you're secure. But have you noticed all the world leaders are saying that phrase? Peace and safety or peace and security, peace and security. Well, she's taking us on this tour. She's showing us all the stuff in the, the UN, right? All these different rooms. And we're over there doing pictures and stuff. 
And so she kept saying, peace and security, peace and security. I couldn't take it anymore. So we waited until a break. I said, Reed, come on, Reed, get this on tape. So, so I, I, I asked her, I said, hey, so you know, keep saying this peace and security, peace and security thing. I said, is that something that somebody made up or the UN or whatever? And she goes, that is one of the three pillars of the United Nations. That's why we exist. We exist for the world government to provide for humanity peace and security. Reed got it on tape. It's awesome, man. I couldn't believe it. What a gym. But anyway, I digress. So anyway, we're over there, and uh, we're in uh, New York at that time, and we're at that, uh, that cool hotel we're in. And so, <laughs> so we got in the room there, and I flipped on the TV, and Scientology has its own channel. That's a whole other thing. They got their own channel now. Now, granted to these guys, I'm going to show you a video clip. I'm going to share with you. I found the video that I saw in that hotel that blew me away, right? And it talks about this procedure, what they're doing to preserve on titanium plates and all this stuff. As you're going to see, these guys, they got cash, and they are very slick with their cash because this is a high-tech, slick media presentation. Young generation, they're going to eat this stuff up. These guys look professional. They're top-notch, everything they do, right? But here's that little teaser of what I saw back in uh, New York uh, when we were doing filming about Scientology. What do they do to preserve Hubbard's writing. Let's take a look at that. In this episode, we're going to show you how the Church of Scientology drew on ancient techniques and pioneered new advances in archival technology to defy the elements and safeguard its most precious asset, its religious technology. You'll see how passion and perseverance fueled one of the world's youngest religions to take on humanity's oldest adversary, time itself. This is a look inside the Church of Scientology's archival project. This is the scripture of the Scientology religion. It consists of more than 75 million written and recorded words and over 70 films. It contains the entire spiritual technology that is Scientology. The only major religion founded in the 20th century it's also the only one with all of its original material fully intact. The church's archival project was created with a single purpose, to safeguard the scripture of Scientology for all future generations. The team, consisting of members of the church's religious order, will need to solve one of humanity's most ancient riddles. How does one truly conquer time? The project will have three phases, preservation, archiving, and permanent storage. First is preservation. These handwritten pages, audio tapes, and films are the source of all Scientology's books and materials, all authored by the church's founder, L. Ron Hubbard. But these physical artifacts have a finite lifespan. To survive, they must be preserved. Next, in archiving, the team will design and create archival editions of each item, strong enough to last thousands of years. 
Finally, the team will design a series of time capsules and atmospherically controlled vaults to protect the materials against anything time may bring, rendering the scripture virtually indestructible. In total, this will represent one of the largest independent archival projects in history. Pretty slick operation, isn't it? Slick presentation, very top-notch, very professional. But you can see the links that they're literally going through, and they're spending some serious amount of cash. But did you notice there, these are the scriptures. It's just it's the writings of L. Ron Hubbard, who's a science fiction writer involved in the occult. But this is part of the spin. This is part of the, the legend of Hubbard. Most people have no clue about his background, okay, what he was really involved in. But this is what they're, they're doing with that. But again, did you notice the symbols? All over there. That's very important. I'll get to that. What is that in a second? Okay. Now, again, they place high volume on this stuff. Again, that, these are bases around the world. Uh, the CST logo. Let's get to that logo thing now. What's going on there? The circles with the two little uh, uh, pyramids or whatever in there. Uh, and, and he says this. It's, it's logo. Oftentimes, they put it, as you saw in the one video, it's visible only from high altitude. Okay. Now, former members claim that the purpose... Uh, of their archival efforts, why they're ensuring that is again to quote ensure that Hubbard's work survived even a nuclear apocalypse, okay, and uh, and a return to quote civilization. Uh, the church also Scientology believes that these plates will last again beyond a thousand years. That Hubbard's teaching will be vital to rebuild civilization in the event of a global turmoil. Now, as far as that logo, former members of the church claim that the symbols in the logo, listen, are, quote, guide markers for Scientologists returning from other parts of the universe. I'll take it a step further. It's not just uh, a little road map, apparently, from the sky and uh, for them, but it's for Hubbard. And remember when uh, Jehovah's Witnesses built a house that was really for Mr. Rutherford to live in, in San Diego, this palatial place, during the Depression. But they said, we need to do this because the prophets are coming back. Well, they've done the same thing for Hubbard. They maintain, I'll show you in a second, they maintain him a house when he comes back. And believe it or not, that logo that they etched that you're going to see from the sky is for him to go, oh, there it is. I kid you not. Watch this. This is a news clip from Australia. I think they uncovered it. Watch this. Uh, the Church of Scientology has uh, uh, apparently a number of places, compounds, in secretive compounds almost, in remote locations around America. We went to one in New Mexico. But on this compound, we're told, is a house which is built for L. Ron Hubbard's return. There are a few unusual features at this compound. This building is set into the side of a mountain which leads to an underground vault. We're also told that there is a house specifically built for L. Ron Hubbard's return. Even though he died 27 years ago, he apparently is coming back. And he'll be guided here by huge symbols cut into the landscape seen only from the air. like you were getting the full story out there? Of course not. I knew almost immediately, and I think the group that I was with knew almost immediately that we were only seeing what they wanted us to see. 
Former local police chief Tim Gallegos is one of the few outsiders who have been inside the compound. What did you see inside? Because it is clearly built into that mountain. They bored into the side of a rock face, and I don't know how far off the ground this thing is, but we took a small elevator up to it. Uh, I would say probably about three or four stories, equivalent to about three or four stories. Sorry, they, they put an elevator in it out there? Yes. Then we were allowed to go into uh, their vault, and that's how they were presenting it to us, is that it was a, kind of like a time, uh, a time vault type thing, and they were there to, to restore and to save uh, most of the teachings and instructions uh, that L. Ron Hubbard had produced. And there, apparently, in this house is a maid and staff who are awaiting his return. As Marty Rathburn says, he's been a little tardy. He doesn't seem to have turned up yet. But we're waiting. And you're going to be waiting a long time. Because unless he called upon the name of Jesus Christ before he died, he's in hell. And he ain't coming back. But it's just like the Jehovah's Witness, right? They got it still active today, uh, still uh, ready for him to go. Uh, when he supposedly comes back, there's a maid there, you know, because he needs to be taken care of, right? And things of that nature. I thought what was funny is, remember, he's reached such a high level that he doesn't need his body anymore. He's basically a god. He's deified. In fact, remember they're what they believe? They get such a high level they can control what's called the mest, right? Which is material and energy and, and space and time. And, and he's so powerful and incredible, but I can't find it. Where's it at? Can you leave? It's like space GPS. You got something for me? Give me a break. <laughs> you need directions. Whatever. But that's all part of the legend that they build around this guy. Right? Okay, so anyway, so now where they're at, 18 years after his death, they said we've got 8 million followers worldwide. Do you think it's an inflated number like with the books? Yes, it is. Because according to one scholar, this is an overestimate because they count even people who merely bought the book Dianetics as a member. Uh, yes, yeah, whatever. So they better estimates, they say by 20, uh, 2009, uh, it's estimated only 25,000 Americans identified as Scientologists. That was 2009. Uh, but again, he still pervades today. Uh, uh, and listen, not just a maid, not just a house for when he supposedly he's supposed to come back. Obviously, he's not. But every church of Scientology maintains an office reserved for Hubbard with a desk, a chair, and writing equipment ready to be used. Can you believe that? All part of this legend to deify this guy. But they say that a lot of them, they say, well, he's the only successor. He's the only, because he is, and again, they not only call him LRH, they also call him simply as Source. With the capital S, Source. He's the source of everything, right? So that, that's what they believe. But, so that's what some people say, well, he's the only one, there is no successor. Aha, here comes the spirit of Diotrophy is here in just a few minutes. Lord willing, the next study I thought I was going to get in the workbook. Ah, oh, Peshaw. <laughs> e of faith. Whoever believed that? <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're going to get now into a little bit of this Miscavige guy. We're going to probably have a whole study on him and bring it up. Then maybe we'll get into the workbook. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but let me give you a little tease of this Miscavige guy, him taking over. Uh, just real quick, he was uh, born in 1960. Okay, and he is right now currently and has been since 1986, and I'd say even a little bit before, 
Uh, he's the leader of Scientology. Uh, basically, he got involved personally with L. Ron Hubbard uh, while he was still a, a teenager. He rose up into the ranks. He uh, got control of the whole thing. Listen, uh, he is still to this day, and now even recently, I got some clips of his father has come out against him other family members, exposing what's going on. We'll probably get into that later. But basically, there's all kinds of things going on with this guy uh, of, of allegations, uh, include, uh, which includes forced separation of family members, coercive fundraising practices, harassment of journalists and church critics. Shocker, that's what they've always done. Humiliation of staff members, including physical assaults upon them by Miscavige himself. Okay, oh, and by the way, this is what the guy looks like if you ever see him around in the media. That's him on the left when he was, guess what? Oh, younger. <laughs> and that's a little bit more of a modern picture of him uh, today. Still kind of a young guy, youngish, uh, for those of you who are... Yeah, I know you over there, you're just thinking, he's old all the way around. What are you talking about? But anyway, let's, let's move on. Uh, but anyway, so uh, he, he's guilty about a lot of this stuff. Uh, they say, of course, again, that anybody that's saying this stuff about him, what do they always say? You're a Nazi spy. You're a communist. That's not true. And, you know, whatever. So the same thing that Hubbard did. Now, how did he get involved real quick? Uh, he was a, as a child, he suffered from asthma and severe uh, allergies. His dad got involved, who has now come out against him. Again, we'll get to that. We'll dwell on later. His dad became interested in Scientology, takes young David Miscavige there with his asthma and allergy, and I quote, quote, within a 45-minute Dianetic session, he was cured of his ailments. Those pop cans, man, I'll tell you what. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so then him and his family, they moved to the headquarters of Scientology at that time uh, in England. And then he was considered, literally, David Miscavige, a 12-year-old prodigy in Scientology because, quote, he became the youngest professional Scientology auditor. He's the one that got to run the people through the pop cans at 12 years old. That's how deep and how long he's been into this thing, okay? On his 16th birthday, with his dad's permission, because an adult could write him off, right, he enters into their military, the Sea Org, right? So at 16 years old. Now, it was there that he starts moving up in the ranks, okay? At 17 years old, right, he works personally with Hubbard in California when Hubbard's there uh, uh, making films, okay? So he gets direct contact with Hubbard. Uh, two years later, Hubbard makes him the head of uh, the CMO, which is the Commodore Messenger Organization. So that's like the, his entrusted people all around Hubbard, right? The, the, what's called the Messengers. So now he, uh, that would put him in what, 19 years old, is in charge of that. Hubbard's inner group, inner circle, right? Now, by 1980, so the next year, so Miscavige, he's about 20 years old. Hubbard is no longer appearing on public functions related to Scientology, right? And uh, a lot of it is because he's on the lamb still. He was on the lamb in the ocean. He was on the lamb on the land, right? And in hiding and freaking out in the last moments of his life, probably the demon stuff and all that, right? But part of it, some say that the reason why he was also in hiding is because Miscavige was taken over behind the scenes, right? In 1981, uh, Miscavige was a place at 21 years old, 21 years old. He was now placed in charge, on top of everything else, the watchdog committee and the, quote, all clear unit. And they had the task of handling all the legal claims against Hubbard. So basically, he gets in control of their CIA operations, as we saw before, and their military Gestapo, right? So now he's in charge of that, as well as Hubbard's inner circle, right? Then he became also in charge of what's called the Author Services of Scientology, which basically manages Hubbard's literary financial affairs. 
So now he gets control of the finances as a young 20-something-year-old uh, kid, right? Then, after the guardian's office, we saw uh, last time the op operation with Snow White and all that blew up and the FBI came in and took over and grabbed all their stuff. Uh, he forced Mary Sue Hubbard to resign and, uh, and then he purged several of the GEO officials. So now he's going in and purging. Now he's taking over, right? He got into Hubbard's inner circle. He took control of the finances. He takes control of basically their CIA, Gestapo, military organization, and he starts gutting the place. 21 years old. Diotrephes, sound familiar? Want to be at the top, right? That's it, and I'll shove anybody out of the way. I'm getting there, right? And so he goes on to do, and does that. Now, quote, all without ever talking to L. Ron Hubbard, as it's reported. 1982, he sets up a new organizational structure and to, quote, release Hubbard from personal liability to handle Hubbard's uh, uh, personal wealth uh, and, he, and, and basically out of the way. So basically he sets up this subsection to take charge of that and take it out of hands with Hubbard. So now he's got the whole thing. This is 1982. This is four years before he dies, right? So he's taken over in the background. And then, of course, in the 1982, right, that's when Hubbard's son, uh, Ronald, who changed his name to DeWolf, uh, uh, goes and says, hey man, you're, you take him to court. You're taking, you're embezzling from my dad. You're whatever. And of course, you know, he lost and, and all that stuff, right? Uh, and then uh, following uh, two years after that, uh, he forms uh, what's called the RTC. And uh, that was uh, uh, what replaced much of Scientology upper and middle management. And basically he does all that. So basically, he's gotten control of everything. He's gotten control of all the management. He took it all. He renamed it, recharged it, took over the whole thing. Hubbard dies in 1986. And as you were here last week, he's the one who goes to the podium in Hollywood at the Palladium and makes the announcement of Hubbard's death. This is that guy. And if you saw the video, young guy. Because this guy did it when he was in his 20s, early 20s. Right? He rose to the top. Now, after Hubbard's death, Miscavige assumed position, right? And he holds the rank of captain. That's the highest ranking member of the Sea Org. And just like Hubbard, I think he enjoys having a lot of money. And I think he uh, uses that, just like Hubbard did, to live a lavish lifestyle. We'll close with this, but Lord willing, next time we're going to pick up a little bit more with this Miscavige guy into modern day Scientology, right? But here's how this guy is living. They are surely unbeatable when it comes to one thing in particular, delusions of grandeur and fondness for theatrical drama and fine-tuned propaganda. In the center of the power rush is the current leader, David Miscavige. Since 1986, he has been the successor of L. Ron Hubbard. There will be no more nothing, because on October the 1st, 1993, at 8.37 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the IRS issued letters recognizing Scientology, and every one of its organizations has fully toxic them. He's actually quite a short person himself, and he's very paranoid because, I believe, of what he does, that he feels that someone's going to hurt him, so he has to hurt them first. Welcome to church. A hundred miles.
southeast of Los Angeles, two hours drive away. Below us is Gilman Hot Springs, the secret world headquarters of Scientology. This is where David Miskovich pulls the strings of his power. The site resembles a vacation resort, grand houses, the golf course right next to them, everything including the California sun. There is room for over a thousand people here, his private army. Only a few Scientologists know of this spot and its meaning. One of them, Jesse Prince, the former representative of David Miscavige, tells us what the picturesque setting conceals. That means the location of the arrow is the real world headquarters of Scientology. Yes. And David Miscavige is living there also? Yes, yes, yes. How would you describe his living condition? Very elaborate, very lavish that I've seen, you know, and, and you, you, you see that some of the buildings that they have are actually quite nice. They, they look quite nice. Some of the properties are quite nice. Very, very luxurious, as a matter of fact, is a good word. Reason being is, is they have zero cost for labor. It's simply material cost because they have their, their slave camp, they have their slave laborers that work night and day, and then when, even when the slave laborers can't keep up with it, there's a day uh, Saturday, where every person at Gilman Hot Springs, no matter what position you're in, goes and does the labor just like the slaves does all day doing renovations. So, in that wise, you know, if you have no labor costs and just materials, you can accomplish quite a bit. Pure luxury made possible by the RPF. Zero labor costs and $300,000 in donations for a private music studio, wardroom and fitness center. All for the comfort of David Miscavige. You know, if he decides that something needs to look a certain way, well then that's how it looks. If he decides that things need to be done in a certain way, then that's how they are done. It is by his will. Iron Fist. Just like Hubbard, right? Grab control, mates to the top. Nobody's taking this baby away. He's still doing it today. But there's a trouble brewing. His own dad just came out against him and uh, other family members. And I uh, wonder how they're going to handle that. Okay? Lord, when we get to that next time. Well, hi. This is Bill Crone of Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So, once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand, okay? Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. 
The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, you shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that, really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven. In that state, you're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. 
and by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, all of it, even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.